Welcome to Stories from the First Watch. This is both a solo game and an experiment in storytelling. The story and the character's actions will unfold upon the roll of the dice. Once the game starts, nothing is predetermined. The dice are in control. One week ago. No! The cry was sharp and impatient. You are too obvious. I sensed you coming seconds before you were behind me. Kilia cursed under her breath and removed her hand from the high fox's pocket. She had crept silently up behind the small, wiry man, but he had gripped her wrist without even turning around. This was her third attempt and her third failure. The high fox turned to face her and let loose a sigh of exasperation mixed with sympathy. Little mouse, he said to her, you will not be put forward for the final test until you can master the basics. If you cannot take a man's purse from his pockets, what hope will you have in joining our ranks? We are not going to sacrifice our security for the sake of one careless recruit. Kilia lowered her eyes and bit her lip. Yes, Fox. I'm sorry. She looked like she was about to cry. The High Fox paused. The two were standing in the courtyard of one of the Greyfellows' townhouses, on the edge of Forlon's merchant district. The guild held a number of properties across the city in secret, often purchased under the name of fictional buyers, whose records were held by clerks in the pay of the thieves. They were used as safe houses, storerooms and training grounds. This one, a handsome but run-down merchant's house, was used as the latter, its winding corridors and stairways the perfect practice space for muggers, cut purses and burglars. Its courtyard doubled up as an improvised public space, and today was Killia's pickpocket training. There was no one leader of the Greyfellows, or rather, there was, but nobody knew who they were. Instead, the guild's strategy was communicated to its members by the High Beasts, who were the public face of the guild. Even then, their true identities were not revealed, for fear of being captured. Instead, for public meetings they wore animal masks, and were thus referred to by these. As well as the High Fox, there was the High Weasel, the High Toad, and the High Hare. You are becoming a good thief, the High Fox said, not unkindly through his mask. He leaned over Kilia and cupped her face. But you need to be less sure of yourself. Work harder! Natural ability only counts for so much. You need diligence and care in your craft, or you'll end up dead in a gutter in no time. I've got faith in you, but I can't let you go to trial unless you can master this. He turned to go. Fox? He turned back. Killia wore a mischievous grin on her face and held up a small leather purse. The fox was momentarily quiet as he put his hand to his pocket. Then he let out a hearty laugh. Ha! 
Perhaps I was too hard on you. Well done, little mouse. I think it might be your time after all. Behind the scenes. When we left the party at the end of the last episode, Kilia was about to go on the hunt for breakfast. Let's see what she finds. I'll roll a d6. On a 1 or 2, she spots a rabbit. On a 3 or 4, a baby deer. On a 5, she finds nothing. On a 6, she accidentally stumbles across something far nastier, and I'll roll on the Wandering Encounters table. Let's see. That's a 2. A rabbit. Not much, but between 5, I'll roll up this nutritious meal, plus a couple of hours rest, will regain one hit point for each party member. The party still have rations for three more days, but once that runs out, they will need to acquire food some other way. Being next to the river means the party members have plentiful access to water, although for every subsequent day that they are in the Shadow Woods, I will roll a dexterity check for one party member to ensure they get down to the river and back safely to collect sufficient water for everyone. The party has made a good start to the morning. Let's see how they get on throughout the day. I'm going to roll a d6 for wandering encounters every hour for... 6 hours. On a 1, the party encounters something or someone. Hour 1. 6. Hour 2. 2. Hour 3. 4. Hour 4. One. So, four hours in, the party encounters something. But what? Let's roll on the forest encounter table from Sam Barlett's Roll and Play Toolkit. Rolling a d12. 11. The party begins to notice painted markings on trees. If followed, they will lead to a secret stronghold. Well then, let's see what happens. Day 2, late afternoon. Party status. Kilia, 4 of 4 hit points. Almanda, 7 of 8 hit points. Navi, 5 of 6 hit points. Mara, 3 of 4 hit points. Elwyn, 7 of 8 hit points. Spells available, shield. The sun was high in the sky now as the afternoon wore on. Although the party was sheltered from its full effects by the canopy of trees, cloaking the marching figures in a gloomy green light, the air was humid and cloying. This, as well as the ever-present clouds of mosquitoes and other biting flies, left the party being hot and irritable. Spirits were relatively high though, as their bellies were still full from the rabbit that Kilia had shot and cooked earlier in the day. It was the first hot meal they'd eaten for a couple of days, and they were glad for it. The river was always present on their right-hand side, but it meandered in and out of view. Sometimes it was barely six feet from their path, others it disappeared far away into the undergrowth, barely able to be seen. The brambles were less thick here, but they were replaced by shoulder-high, or in Narvi's case, head-high, ferns, which made Elwyn nervous. Who knows what creatures could erupt from there at any moment? 
the older man was quiet and withdrawn, constantly scanning the area for signs of movement. Kilia, by contrast, was bouncing around like a puppy, her mood lifted by her successful hunt, and she was glad to be out adventuring rather than slaving away in the kitchen of the Saint Anoga. Mara listened as Almanda and Navi passed the time by trading stories of their previous exploits. The tall man seemed to have had quite a life. She guessed he was in his late twenties or early thirties, with a stubbled face and a military haircut that was beginning to grow out into tasseled black locks. He had a couple of nasty scars on his neck, and his acerbic sense of humour belied his time in the border watch. From what Mara could gather, he had left in disgrace, but he was reluctant to go into details, instead regaling them with tales of mischief and daring-do in the southern steppes. The dwarf, meanwhile, was as always stoic and calm, except on the couple of occasions Mara had seen him leap into battle, when he had become almost possessed with battle fury. It seemed like he was not used to being around humans, and was almost shy. He was much more comfortable when telling tales of his own community, and life in the halls of Shazenbund, where great caverns echoed to the noise of huge mining engines, whose technologies were intertwined with the religious worship of the dwarven god Gazan. Mara, however, was in a miserable daze, wondering how her life had come to this. It felt like she'd been wandering through this forest for weeks. She still wasn't sure what to make of this ragtag group of strangers, but they were increasingly becoming the only people she could trust. Indeed, the only people she had seen since they had left Forland, what seemed like weeks ago. She had spent the time going over her mage training in her head, testing her memory, and during the party's brief periods of rest, she pored over her spellbook, desperately hoping to gain some further knowledge from its impenetrable writing. Now, though, she was staring glumly into the middle distance, when something caught her eye. Look, she said, pointing at a tree trunk ahead. The rest of the party turned, and saw a series of symbols engraved into the wood. On further investigation, there were other trees a few yards ahead that bore similar symbols. Behind the Scenes The party has come across these strange symbols carved into a tree. Will any of them recognise the script, or even know what they mean? I feel that Mara's intelligence score, not to mention her years of study, make her the most likely of the party to recognise the origins of these symbols. I'll need to roll a 17 or more on a d20, and Mara has a plus 3 bonus to her intelligence. That's a 16, which with Mara's bonus scores 19, so she does know who wrote it. But I currently don't know, so I'm going to use the GM emulator to see if this will be a hostile encounter or not and this will affect which species I choose. So will these creatures be hostile? 50-50. 90. No, they are not. Does Mara know what the symbols mean? I'll roll again on her intelligence. That's a 7, so no, she doesn't. Okay, that's hopefully good news for the party. Let's see who or what they find. Day 2 early evening. It's Gnomish, said Mara. I'm pretty sure of it. Navi looked up alertly. Gnomes live here, he said. 
I have heard they left these parts long ago, once the manlings took over their lands. The first I've heard of it, said Armanda, but then I don't spend my time poking through bushes looking for things to fight. Well, rather than the last couple of days, of course. Elwyn looked quizzical. I always thought they were a myth, he said. Or a type of dwarf, those who loved wood rather than stone. There are more people than you know, Manling, said Navi rather stiffly. But in a way you are right. Our legends tell us that once we were the same people. We were spread out across the known world. Once the great Sundrans came, and then later on, with the rise of the Manlings, we scattered. Those who lived in the mountains took on the aspect of stone and became the dwarves. And those in the forest took on the aspect of wood and became the gnomes. Of course, humans have always found us more useful, he added bitterly. Whereas even manlings can cut down trees. Gnomes are scarce because their homes have been ravaged by the manlings. Well, you're a ray of sunlight, aren't you? said Amanda sourly. Let it be known I have no intention of chasing any gnomes. I just want to get out of this bloody forest. Behind the scenes. Well, the party has found out who made the markings, but have the culprits spotted them? I'm going to say it's very likely on the GM emulator. 81. Yes, the party is being tracked by a group of gnomes, who are curious rather than outright hostile. But this area of the forest is riddled with their traps, which they have intended to ward off outsiders. Will the party fall foul of these? As the party's two rogues, Elwyn and Kilia, have chances to find these traps. Elwyn is level 2 and has a 25% chance of locating a trap. Rolling a d100. 37. No, that's a failure. Kilia only has a 20% chance at level 1. Let's see how this pans out. The night was starting to draw in on the party's first full day in the Shadow Woods. The shadows of the trees lengthened, creating eerie giant fingers of darkness across the pathway. We should be thinking about making camp, said Elwyn. I think we have done well. Tomorrow may be our last day in the forest. Mara didn't quite like the ambiguity of that statement. Kilia, rather than feeling sleepy, came alive even more with the coming of night. She was leading the way, her small nimble body best suited for scouting. Suddenly she stopped, and the others almost barreled into her. What is it? asked Armanda. Kilia put her fingers to her lips, and they listened in silence. There it was again, a faint, high rustling on the edge of hearing, rather like whispering. It almost sounded like the trees were having a conversation with each other. It was quiet again. Then Kilia heard it a third time, coming from the left ahead of her. Her blood up, she motioned to the others to follow her. Putting her foot forward, she heard a quiet, ominous click. Oh shit, she managed before the five of them suddenly found themselves engulfed in the great net and catapulted violently upwards. Are you looking for a D&D podcast with a dark side? 
something more like Game of Thrones and less like Monty Python. Tale of the Manticore is part dark fantasy audio drama, part solo D&D RPG. There's no plot armor here. The dice make all the important decisions. Join me as I resurrect the excitement, wonder, and emotion of old-school D&D. Made for a mature audience, Tale of the Manticore is both a fiction and a game. It's the story where chaos rolls. The creatures were small, barely two feet tall, and were humanoid, in the sense they had arms and legs and stood upright. They had narrow bodies and elongated arms, giving them the appearance of mobile tree branches, and their brown skin had an almost woody texture, and was covered in whirling spirals of blue tattoos. They had protruding noses and ears with flat heads and cat-like eyes, which focused implacably on the party. Some of them had wispy beards, which hung down to their waists. They had swarmed the pathway when the party had triggered the net trap, and had climbed over the entangled party members, cutting through the dried climbing vines which had comprised the net. Working in chains, the gnomes, with surprising strength, had lowered each of them to the ground so that they did not fall and hurt themselves. Now the five of them were seated on the ground, arms bound, with nearly twenty of the creatures pointing stubby spears, barely more than sharpened branches, at their prone figures. A gnome with a slightly longer beard than the rest, braided into three strands, stepped forward and regarded them with an expression of quizzical amusement. He said something in a strange language that again brought to mind the wind rustling in the trees. When he saw no response from the party, he tried again, this time in common. Five strangers lost in the woods, he said in a high voice with a slight creak to it, like branches on a windy day. What brings you to our home? Are we not hidden enough from you that you wish to make our lives more of a misery? He looked at Narvi. I'm one of the kinfolk, he said, before saying something in Dwarvish that made Narvi bow his head. What a surprise! I hope you are not all going to force us into an unwanted decision. Narvi shook his head. Please, Woodfather, he said. We are not here to impose upon you or to steal your fruits and burn your trees. We entered the woods merely to hasten our path to Hollow Hill, and... The human village, said the gnome. The people who cut up our flocks and live in their broken bodies. I am afraid so, said Narvi. But we are going there to destroy a worser evil. There are goblins in the village. There was a rush of anguished whispering amongst the gnomes. Even worse, shrieked the Woodfather. They must be flushed out. But first, if you are going to travel through our lands, you will pay homage to the Forest Queen. We have need of your help, even if you are the lesser of these two evils. We are a fair people. If you help us, we will help you. Forgive me, G- Woodfather, protested Elwyn. We are short of time. We need to hunt down these creatures and put an end. You are forgiven, interrupted the Woodfather. He stared levelly at Elwyn. The two were currently the same height as the old thief sat bound on the floor. However, there was no choice offered. Any visitors to the forests need the permission of the Queen. Without it, you will have no protection from the other things that live here. 
He turned and spoke again in the gnome's strange whispering language to his fellows. They encouraged the party to stand with the help of their pointy sticks. Now, said the woodfather, we shall take you to your audience with the queen. Still bound, the party were surrounded by the men of the forest and escorted through the dense woodland. Some of the gnomes carried large fluorescent toadstools in the manner of parasols, which gave off an eerie purple glow that lit their way. Every so often, the party members swore they could see other answering glows in the distance. After an interminable time, when the party felt totally and utterly lost, the gnomes halted in front of an especially huge oak tree, ancient and wizened, its huge spidery branches curving down to the ground and undulating outwards, putting the party in mind of a giant thrashing octopus frozen in time. Pay respects to the King of Limbs, said the old gnome. The gnomes bowed, and so did the party. The gnomes rounded the tree, and the party found themselves facing a large opening in the roots below it, which seemed to lead into a tunnel. The Queen's Palace, said the woodfather. Follow me. Thank you for listening to Stories from the First Watch. I would like to thank this week's voice actor. Playing the High Fox was Andy Jones, GM extraordinaire. Just as the party thought they were mastering the Shadowwoods, a new encounter has forced them off on a different path. What will their audience with the Forest Queen entail? And what other quest will they need to complete? Find out next time on Stories from the First Watch.